Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host, Hilary Milnes, and today's guest is the influencer Blair Eady. Blair discussed her early Instagram days, how she chooses the best brand partnerships, and how a Nordstrom sponsorship evolved into her first designer collaboration. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Blair. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Of course. So you are an influencer. We were just talking. People don't always love that term, uh, but it's a, a space that's evolved a lot over the past few years. Can you tell us how you got your start, um, how you broke into the market? Um, your blog is Atlantic Pacific. Obviously, you have a great Instagram following. Um, how did that How did that all come together? Yeah, so I actually started Atlantic Pacific as a blog back in 2010. So this is predating Instagram. Mm -hmm. um, I was working at Gap Corporate in San Francisco. And at the time, I recognized as a design merchandising team, when we were looking for inspiration in the market, uh, we were slowly looking away from the runway and editorials and focusing more on street style and personal style. And I just recognized this really cool shift in the industry that there was this conversation happening about style and fashion online, and you didn't necessarily have to be a part of a huge brand or an editorial conglomerate. And I really wanted to become a part of the conversation. So in April of 2010, I started taking uh, daily outfit photos and really had no expectation of it evolving into a business because at the time it really was just nitty gritty sharing online. And there really weren't the revenue streams that exist today to, to really build it into a business. Right. So you definitely had to sort of navigate that as it as it did evolve. Yes. Um, and so tell us about the when Instagram came into the picture, how did that change what you were doing? And then did you kind of see it for what it was going to end up becoming at the time? Or or how did you get, get used to that platform? Yeah, it was interesting, because at the time, there wasn't really any social media platform that had exploded in the way that Facebook had. Mm -hmm. And so I really didn't know which platform was going to take was going to take hold at the time. Obviously, Twitter existed, but in a very different f medium than what I was doing, since mine was so visual. And then um, Pinterest had just started and then Instagram came came about. And I really had no idea that Instagram would become what it is today. Um, what was nice about Instagram, Instagram becoming so influential is that being such a visual blogger, it was the perfect platform for me to gain an audience and continue to evolve kind of my personal style and the conversation there since that type of medium um, lent itself so well to, to what I do and what I like to highlight. Right, yeah, yeah. It, it basically started careers for a lot of people. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, But it's funny because we talk a lot with brands specifically Mm -hmm. direct to consumer, um, owning your audience, knowing who they are. Yeah. How do you do that on Instagram versus on your blog? I'm sure as an as an influencer, having a close relationship with your audience is really important. Uh, do you find that Instagram is better for broader reach and, and getting um, 
you know, exposure out there and then the blog is better for harboring closer communication with a specific audience? How do you sort of balance the two and look at them as two different platforms that that eventually come up to to service your brand? Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like um, diversification is is key in the industry right now. So for me, it's diversification against a, across platforms. So making sure that I continue to have my traditional blog, I evolve that in the ways that I need to. Instagram, um, my my email subs- subscription list, um, and then on the flip side, when it comes to partnerships, making sure that I'm equally diversifying across rev share true paid partnerships and affiliate. So Mm -hmm. I think it really is when it comes to the space of Instagram and the blog and how you capture an audience. um, It is about making sure that you're creating unique content on each platform to to drive people for a reason for each of those to exist. If you're just duplicating across each, it really doesn't make sense. I think the tough thing about blogs is that, um, you know, now a traditional freestanding website, it is hard to catch people's attention. And I think there's so many distractions in digital and in, in the space. I think that people who really come to my blog are are the most dedicated followers and I really have their captivated attention. So that's a place where I can really dive deeper into topics and really talk more about brands that I'm loving. Whereas I think Instagram, as we all know, is that like little quick snippet where people are scrolling by. But the power of Instagram is, is that that's where that is where the broadest audience is. That's really where you can capture um, obviously, it's almost like a marketing tool for my blog because I can capture, obviously, new readers and hopefully get them to convert to continue to obviously see my style and discover past styles that they haven't seen by by coming to the blog. Right. So, yeah. when, so when you think about um, influence, the influencer industry as an actual business, yeah, it's it 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 serves a purpose to have that that audience that is still visiting the blog. You wouldn't say that the Instagram influencer killed the blogger. I know people talk about, is there even a need for like a, yeah. a website and a, and a homepage with the blog? Yeah. And it's interesting. I think, um, you know, there's arguments to both sides. And I think what I always say is, you know, to each their own. So I think what I do and what I focus on in my strategy is going to be very different from somebody else's. And they can be equally as successful, if not more. It's just about kind of what is right for you. And obviously, the content that you're trying to deliver and the type of audience that you're trying to captivate. And I think, um, you know, it's interesting. I, the thing that really makes me nervous about Instagram is we've kind of seen Facebook and in the direction that it's gone and it's such a pay to play space and it's become very crowded and obviously there's a lot of the um the security issues and the trust issues with a lot of people using Facebook. And I think even with some of the recent developments with Instagram and key players leaving, which most likely means Facebook's going to take an even bigger reign on the direction of Instagram, I think if I only had an Instagram account, that would be a very scary place for me. Because if my entire business is resting on one channel, the same way that I said, you know, if, if my entire business was resting on one revenue channel, mm-hmm. um, that is just something where the, the carpet can get pulled out from underneath you. So for me, it's even though the amount of people I reach on Instagram far exceeds the amount of people I reach on my blog, it's still big enough on the blog and it's still important enough to me to continue that because at the end of the day, that's the only thing that I control is my email subscription list and my blog. So if all else goes away on the internet, um, I still have a place where people can find my content and interact with me. Yeah, that's a great point because at the end of the day, no matter how much Instagram has done to, to um, you know, build a platform for for people like you and other influencers they they have their own agendas that they're working for absolutely yeah uh so so let's talk about when when the money started 
coming in? When did this become like, you're like, oh wait, I can make money off this. Oh wait, this can actually be my career. This could be a real business. Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, in 2010, um, for people who really follow the the blog space closely, it was back in the day when you're uploading outfits to like Chicktopia Mm -hmm. and Lookbook New. (laughs) um, And really it was just about like sharing with an audience. And then really the first... um, the, the first people to approach me to really create revenue for the blog was an affiliate link company. So I never thought, like, nobody really shops my blog. Like, they just come and they kind of see what I'm wearing. And the first affiliate link I put up, I think I sold, like, 200 dresses in 24 hours. And so I think from there, I was like, wow, this really is, this really can become a business. Um, I think the tough thing for me is... Um, Obviously, you know, I started getting approached for partnerships and things of that nature, but at the same time, I recognized that I wanted to continue my career path in merchandising. So for me, it was always about balancing the two. And in a good way, I think it made me um, be much more selective with the partners that I took on for the blog because I knew my time was precious. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it started with affiliate links. And then I think from there, a lot of partners who saw success in affiliate linking, Nordstrom being one of them, recognized that, you know, if they want to drive incremental revenue off of affiliates in a more strategic way than let's do paid partnerships where I link specifically to a, a product category that they're trying to grow or a specific brand. And so then obviously affiliate linking moved into paid partnerships. And, and then from there, I think a lot of brands recognized the power of brand halo. So not even just like an ROI, like driving revenue through clicks or somebody actually purchasing something, but even just brand awareness. So then there was a lot of partnerships that came through that. Uh, And then it's evolved into more of the space that we're in now where it's more of the rev share. So really creating product uh, with brands and sharing the revenue and and really creating something where readers know that I had a big hand in the the, the product or whatever comes out of that collaboration. Right. So it kind of just keeps building on, okay, there's an opening other doors. There's more opportunity. There's more opportunity. But do you feel from from your point of view, it seems like brands have been I mean, they they've kind of just been feeling this out as it as it comes along, like they don't have a a set strategy. The influencer marketing industry is very new. They've had to make hires and didn't know whether to outsource to agencies. And so it's, it's obviously very touch and go from your perspective. How did you figure out one, how to basically stand your ground and and get what you felt you deserve from the influencer point of view, as well as pick the right partnerships and basically work out terms that that made sense for for both sides. Like what role did did you play in basically figuring out what this industry would look like um, as like an influencer marketing subset of a broader marketing strategy? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think having a background in merchandising, that is all about like writing a roadmap for the season and setting key strategies. So even when I started my blog, I had very set key strategies. And I think that's the, obviously, if you come into a partnership and you don't really know who you want to be or what you want to accomplish or the direction you want to go, it's going to make it very difficult to choose key partners that Mm -hmm. make sense and are going to become long-term partners. So for me, it was about starting from a place where I knew my strategy. Of course, your strategy can evolve. As the space evolves, there's definitely things that I've changed about what I want to accomplish. But I was very clear from the beginning about what my strategy was and who I wanted to be in the space. From there, when when a partner approaches me, my first question, which sometimes catches people off guard, is always, what does success look like to you? Like, if we partner on this project, then ultimately, what is the best outcome for you? And I think to your point, what's, what does scare me sometimes is sometimes the, it, 
brands will come to me, very large brands, and they'll say, well, we don't really know. And that's a tough place to be in because for me, I really want to create a partnership that can be long-term and lasting. And I really want them to feel like it was a productive partnership for both of us. Mm-hmm. And I think that if a brand can't define what success looks like, that's that's probably like a red flag that they may come back to you really unhappy with something that was delivered and you're put into a really compromising you know place. I think outside of that, you know, the other key factors are obviously making sure our aesthetics align if, you know, it's a brand I've worn before. And then I think also how much creative control do I have? And I completely understand that this is a partnership and a collaboration. So I want to work hand in hand with a partner. But if it becomes more of a they're dictating too much of the styling, too much of the visual direction, which is really what I'm supposed to own. That's when I say, you know what, this probably isn't a great partnership because I want to stay true to my readers and have this be a really, really authentic post or Instagram or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really kind of where I start with with key partners. And from there, when I found partners that have aligned, it's nice because that does evolve into these long-term partnerships as with a Nordstrom, who I think I've worked with since 2011. Right. Yeah. And, and then the the audience says, okay, that's that's just a brand that, that they work with and it's not changing all the time. If it's a one-off, I, I think it, it kind of decreases the value, I'm sure, from the audience perspective. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because I think, I think there's certain categories where you can wear, you know, for example, in fashion, everybody probably doesn't wear one single pair of denim. So within the year, if I do three different denim-sponsored posts and they are all denim that I've worn in the past, that comes off as pretty authentic because, you know, everybody probably owns a handful of denim brands. But I think there's other categories where it gets tricky. Like if you're pushing a different car company or a different credit card or um, you're saying your beauty regimen is different every other day, I think that's when it gets tough. And it's about Mm -hmm. that authenticity. And will you wear that product after the partnership has finished? Did you wear that product? before the partnership and Mm -hmm. it is it's a lot of those things to continue to build like that authenticity with also you know to keep that relationship going with the brand so it's authenticity with the reader but then it's also the relationship with the brand right and how often do like exclusive partnerships come up if you're if you're working with one brand does that mean that during that duration you can't be not even promoting but just in your Instagram story, wearing something that that falls into that same category is that is that something that you sort of feel out every every time on a different basis? Yeah, I think um, all of you know partner all of my partners work very differently. So sometimes there are strict kind of exclusive causes clauses with timelines, and then I think at other times it's it's more of just a, a fluid partnership. Mm-hmm. Um, I think especially for the the larger partnerships where they're investing a lot of time, money, resources. You know, a lot of those partnerships that we talked about the rev share, the creating product, understandably, they want that to be your focus when Mm -hmm. it goes live. So I think those are a little more strict than perhaps, you know, just an everyday outfit post with a partner that you work with throughout the year. Right. Yeah. And it's to to your point, it's a red flag if they don't really know what what they're getting into, uh, because you're not setting the expectations that that you're on the same page. At the same time, do you think it's a red flag if a brand puts too much emphasis on something like sales? Like you said, a lot of a lot of this comes down to brand halo impressions. Those are those can be scary on the brand side, because they're still figuring out what exactly that means and what that does. Uh, but you have to think, okay, if, if you, they see you wearing a pair of jeans, then even if it's not really a link to shop right then and there on in one Instagram, oh, but that might stick in their mind, then they might go check it out online, then they might buy it in store. That entire path to purchase has become so diversified. Do you think that it's 
Is it also like alarming to you if they're like, okay, well, we want this exact sales figure to come out of this partnership because that's something that that seems like it'd be hard to promise. Yeah, and I think, it, um, like I said in the beginning, kind of talking about like knowing yourself. So like knowing your strategy before you know you go into a partnership. And it's also about really understanding you and being honest with yourself mm-hmm. about where you stand in the space. So are you more of that editorial halo you know, fashion blogger where maybe you don't drive as much sales because you promote more luxury or you do more brand awareness. And then there's others who really, really convert, but within a certain space. So they're, you know, obviously more of that shopping blogger where they're really, really driving that ROI. Um, and so I think for me, it's it's knowing what I can deliver and being really honest about that and saying, mm-hmm. you know what, this is realistically what I think that the end result will be with this. And there have been many times that people have come to me and said, this is the exact sales figure we want to drive. And sometimes it's within product categories or price points that I know I just can't deliver. And I say, you know what, that's that unfortunately, like, I don't think I'm the right fit for this. And it's much easier to have that conversation and have that pass by and say, you know what, this is just not a contract that I'm willing to sign because I just, you've put, you know, I have been in those situations where unfortunately I feel like I haven't delivered something and there's no worse feeling. And again, I want to come out of it with both of us feeling like this was a mutually beneficial partnership. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, not only about extending the relationship with that brand, but as we know, in the industry, people move around so much. Mm-hmm. So it's like within PR, within agencies, as you said. So it's also about protecting my reputation right? and making sure people say, hey, like she was really great to work with. She was really upfront about what she could deliver. She delivered on time and we were really happy with the partnership. So when that person who works in, you know, in internal PR then moves into an agency and they're looking to pitch people, they obviously think of me. And I think that that's a, that's a big part of it for me too, is protecting my my reputation and making sure that I'm being an honest person who's like acting with integrity. Right. And yeah. I'm sure you're teaching brands a little something about <laughs> what they should be able to expect from these partnerships at the same time. Um, and I'm sure on the on the scope of uh, influencers, as someone who worked in-house at a retailer, yes. you're, you're probably one of the better <laughs> ones to work with, I imagine, understanding why deadlines are important and those little things. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that takes us to Nordstrom, which you have a collection that you designed um, in part with their private label um, halogen. Is that right? Yes. So where, when did they, what did they pitch that to you? What did they, what did they come to you and say, or was that something that you uh, thought of? Um, No. So they approached me and, you know, they're at the forefront of what's happening when it comes to digital and influencers. I think they've been really early adopters um, of change in the space, which I've, I've always really respected. And like I said, I've worked with them a really long time and I really respect their professionalism and kind of their best in class customer service and even internal marketing and design. So they approached me um, with this opportunity to work with them to create a co-collab with Halogen. So I really talked about kind of going back to success, like what does this look like? Let's discuss what I feel like my brand ethos is and what I would want a collection to look like. Let's talk about, you know, halogen and what are your core competence, competencies and like really what does that Venn diagram look like mm-hmm. and, and what is that co-collab, you know, as, as it comes together, like what ideally would that look like? And I think we had some really great conversations and it, it escalated very quickly into moving forward into this. And we really started with inspiration and, you know, this is what I'm really feeling inspired by. Fall was the perfect time of year. Um, having started my blog in San Francisco, I have become known for layering, and in fall is my Super Bowl. So I was like, this is like the perfect, the perfect season to do it. Um, and I think they were also really open to some of the ideas um, behind behind the marketing, behind the timing that we both 
we both kind of agreed to. I think these influencer collabs are amazing, um, but I think that they're also not totally new news at this point. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to do something a little bit different where it was like this limited edition capsule and it's released, you know, I hate this term, but where now, by now. It really Mm -hmm. is a fall collection that's released in October, it's released in October 22nd, when you want to buy fall clothes. And instead of having this six-month lead-up time of all of this kind of marketing hype around it, I was like, people are talking about immediacy, like we're going to announce it on the 3rd, and it's going to be sold on the 22nd. So really kind of taking a little bit of a different marketing approach with it as well. Yeah, why, uh, from your point of view, did you think that that made sense? It's kind of like speaking to this, like you mentioned, the hard to say term like the see now buy now where now buy now yeah. um, but also like the drop model that that's yeah. sort of creating excitement do you think that from your um where you're sitting as an influencer with a with a pretty big i guess you could say big audience of like 1 million plus followers on Instagram do you think that that's like the prime setting to just say hey like listen this is out in a few weeks um and and people will 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 get the message like well that's the hope no <laughs> uh, so i think uh for me i you know, I think it's really cool that having worked at a traditional retailer, I see the amount of things that tie their hands, right? There's there a lot of them are on wholesale calendars and they're having to go to market early, obviously, for buy. Uh, they have all of these these things holding them back. Whereas as, as an influencer, you have a captivated audience and it's the ability to really change the way that you market and model things. And so for me, it's really capitalizing on you know, I'm a different type of marketer than a brand is. And so I should approach this differently and I should do it in a different way and try something new because that is how the industry is going to evolve. So this isn't necessarily something that I I don't think anybody's done before. Mm -hmm. And that's what's exciting and that's what's new about it. And I think that that it'll be a learning process for both me and for Nordstrom. But I think a lot of this, you know, even when speaking with Nordstrom and we're very much on the same page, you know, to get the most out of me as an influencer, even when it comes down to the line and the marketing, it's about trying new things because they can have a learning from it as well. So pushing the product a little bit more, doing a different marketing strategy, and I think we'll both have learnings from it. Um, and I think that's what's really exciting about the partnership. Right, and this is the first time you've had a hand in designing something, is that right? Yes, yeah, so this is the first um, the first apparel accessories true co-collab that mm-hmm. I've done, yes. And so you mentioned, you know, retailers have their hands tied in a lot of different ways. And so how, and, and you as an influencer don't really, or yeah. we're working a very different schedule. What did that mean for, for the design process? How long um, was the collection in production before, you know, you got to this um, October 3rd announcement date? And do you feel like it, it you know, moved? Like, how did you think yeah. like, you know, you don't want to be planning a year and a half ahead whenever you want something to be pretty immediate? Yeah, and that's what's interesting is that, you know, you can build out the the product on a, on a normal life cycle, but then market it in a different way. And I think for me, um, I, having the background of obviously merchandising, I've traditionally worked on a 32 to 35 week pipeline, which is very common in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually spent a year developing a 12 week pipeline with um, Gap Inc. So mm-hmm. uh, when I worked at Old Navy, that was my last role there is creating a, a fast pipeline. So getting from concept to market 12 to 16 weeks. So I understand the intricacies of what it takes to get product faster to market and really what that means. Where do you cut corners? Where do you figure this out? So, you know, in working with Nordstrom, um, it was a great collaboration because I think we were able to get a lot done because I wrote the line plan. I was like, okay, when are we going to sketch review? What are the ratios we're sketching? One to two, great, let's get it down to this in order to move faster. When are we seeing?
seeing, okay, two protos, one proto. So for me, I really understood the entire life cycle of product and the pipeline. And from there, I believe we ended up delivering from concept to market, I believe it was 30 weeks, um, you know, which which can be faster than than some brands. It's, it's obviously not like true fast fashion in any ways, but I think we still built it on a pipeline where we made sure the quality was there. We got, you know, the fit and tent right. Um, so we weren't cutting corners in terms of getting the product to market faster, but it was really about readjusting our approach to the marketing side of it. Mm-hmm. And so, and, that, and that's the, the shorter marketing lead time. Yes. Um, and it's so, you know, in working with Nordstrom on this and, and also tying into this initiative to have a little bit something a little bit more flexible on the product side and the collection release side, you, is it almost jarring for you as an influencer to have something that's so involved and, and mature as an influencer partnership with, with a company like Nordstrom? And then there seems like there's also brands in the industry that are still like, sort of feeling it out like how do you whenever you're working with a new brand how do you sort of look at it and say where are you right now in your in your maturation of understanding influencer marketing and then how do you sort of change what that means for you and and whether you're going to do it or how you go about the terms of it how are you basically changing the way that you interact with the brands based on where they are and, and and how they understand the space yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting because it's um, it's different sizes of companies and brands that are at different at different points. So there's some brands that are smaller in terms of annual revenue, but are way forward thinking and way far ahead in terms of their influencer strategy and then vice versa. There's some huge mass, you know, retail brands that are really behind. So for me, it's obviously not about like the size of the company or their reach. Um, it really is about their strategy internally and where they are. So a lot of times if it's a brand that I've actually never seen promote promoted with Instagrammers or promoted with bloggers or promoted in the fashion space, that's when it is an opportunity for me to say, hey, I'd love to know a little bit more about your strategy. How are you working this year? What can I expect to see from the brand? And not in an invasive way. I'm not mm-hmm. asking for like who specifically are you working with, but it is important for me as an influencer that I want to deliver content that is unique and different. And as brands sometimes evolve their marketing and marketing strategies when it comes to influencers, I also want to know, oh, okay, you want to promote X, Y, and Z. Is this going to be on 40 people or four? Mm-hmm. Am I going to see see this like you know blasted all over the internet and are we going to post on the same day or are we going to post on different days and it's understanding those adjacencies so for me it really is on making sure that I understand their strategy in a holistic way mm-hmm. I think more of the established um, brands and retailers like a Nordstrom who've been working a long time I feel like I know what to expect um, I know that how the how the, they've operated in the space because I can just see it from my own eyes but it, it is those brands where I'm like Oh, interesting. Like, I love your product, but I actually haven't seen you work with a lot of influencers. Would love to know a little bit more about, like, what your strategy is Mm -hmm. and what I can expect. Because I also don't want to get caught off guard. I completely understand brands are not just going to work with me. Mm -hmm. But I also want to be aware of how they're going to show up in the space. Right. And how do you think that this, the influencer industry, has changed marketing strategies? I think, you know, you look at a company like Revolve, where they just filed for an IPO, and and influencer marketing is such a huge part of their business. I think it's something insane, like, they can trace 70 percent of their sales to influencers. And so I'm, I'm imagining that the more that a, a company focuses in on that, it kind of has that ballooning effect where the more impact it has for the business overall, where if you dabble in it once or twice, you're like, well, what is this? It's not really having the effect that I thought it would. But do you see that overall, like, I don't know, I feel like there was a time when people thought, oh, there's an influencer bubble. And maybe that meant they're not going to get paid as much as for one Instagram post as they might have been in, in a few years ago. But what are the overall 
um, lasting changes for the for marketing that influencers have had? Yeah, I think um, I did want to hit on kind of like the the influencer bubble because I just mm. think that that is a, a funny thing that people love to talk about. And I think the one thing that always um, surprises me is when people say, "When is this influencer bubble going to burst?" And I almost laugh and I'm like, "These are these the same people who thought like the internet wasn't going to stick around?" <laughs> and I think for me, it's not about the influencer bubble. It's about recognizing that this whole industry isn't driven by influencers. It's driven by a consumer and a reader. So the consumers and readers vote with their clicks, their views, and their wallet. Mm -hmm. And they have clearly voted that they are influenced by Instagrammers, the people that they follow. And so for me, it's about actually the industry and brands recognizing and not recognizing that it's more about the consumer behavior has changed. And I think that's a conversation that doesn't happen often because I think that a lot of people focus on, oh, you know, the salacious articles of like this 20 year old is making X millions of dollars and this and that. Mm -hmm. But I think the point is, is that people are missing the fact that let's talk about how the consumer has changed and the consumer has changed the way that they are obviously shopping, the way that they're getting information, the way that they're seeing trends, the way that they're consuming information, everything from ads to, you know, anything that they're watching. And so I think that that that's actually the conversation conversation that needs to be had is that I don't know necessarily if the the blogger influencer space will continue to grow as much as it has over the last five years. But the idea is those consumers are now on those platforms and they're looking for people to relate to to obviously inform their purchases. So how are you going to connect with them? And how are you going to continue to evolve with the customer? And it's just, it's very it's very interesting to me that people focus more on the bloggers and the influencers because there's these numbers and these large dollars that are behind it that people love to like talk about. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that like, consumers have completely changed their behavior and there's no going back from that. Right. And to that end, do you think that influencers have been more disruptive to the editorial publishing industry or the or the brand marketing industry? It's interesting. I I think that it the bloggers have obviously disrupted the editorial industry. But I think at the end of the day, like we will always need those insanely informed journalistic editors who really know the industry. And I think that that will always exist. But again, like how do you evolve and how do you allow editors to be on platforms where they can reach people? Mm -hmm. I think influencers and bloggers have definitely disrupted more of the brand marketing side because I think that is where brands are scrambling to figure out how to capitalize on those consumers who change their behavior. And right now, those consumers who change their behavior are following all of those influencers. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think, to be honest, I think for brands, it is kind of tough because it's also not, it's a very fragmented strategy. So before, if you were a large brand, just like coming from the other side, it was like, great, what are your big ad buys going to be this season? You know, everything from TV to radio, working at like a very large brand um, to obviously just, you know, newspaper, um, magazine. But now what they're having to do is they are having to hire people, as you said, who understand the industry to inform them who they should be spending their dollars with. But then in order to kind of really get that reach like a revolve, they're having to work with so many different influencers who all work in different ways, who mm -hmm. all have different agents. And I think for them, I'm like, it must be exhausting. Yeah. Like, I sympathize. Right. Um, and so I, th I think it definitely has disrupted more of the brand marketing side because brands are now having to work in these ways that are scalable, 
but it's almost like death by a thousand paper cuts because instead mm-hmm. of before it was like, okay, great, we're just going to like place these two big ad buys and like that's it for the season. And now they're obviously having to work with so many different people across so many different countries, time zones, all of these different things that I think it's just more complicated. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and the the return is is dubious, yes. uh, for sure. But we're almost out of time. Do you, where do you where do you predict this all going? We have rumblings of maybe an Instagram overhaul. Uh, companies like like Revolve that have built such a big such a big business off of this, um, but it's scattered. It's it's you know even if there's not a bubble, there might be a shakeout. What are you what do you see happening in the next few years? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think again, one of the overall themes that I've seen is across you know the the eight plus years I've been blogging is that brands are trying to become more like people and people are trying to become more like brands and I don't think we've hit that that peak yet where we've really seen that shift of I think influencers will continue to evolve into brands and I think brands will continue to find ways to become more relatable feel more of that like people person touch when it comes to relating to people so I think that that will continue I think when it comes down to the shakeup, I think it will be on the platforms. It'll be, if there's an Instagram shakeup, what does that mean then for the people who only have Instagram? Right. And I think I think the influencer space will continue to exist. I think it'll continue to grow, but I think it will evolve in terms of where are the people who obviously follow the consumers, where they find them on the internet, whether that is on Instagram or a new platform that might come up, or will we go, or will we return to blogs where people are like Instagram overhaul, I'm over it, like so many people who have gotten off Facebook and said, oh, I'm gonna go back to like the roots of what I loved about like influencers and blogging. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's just gonna continue in terms of that, what I talked about before, like the consumer is shopping in a new way and that won't change. But everything around it will continue to change change and evolve for yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I like the idea of the influencer email list, like you mentioned. Yeah. yeah that's a good way to get get right to the people. Yeah. <laughs> Not absolutely. Have to use Instagram. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Blair. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Special thanks to Gianna Capadona, the producer of this podcast. If you've been enjoying this podcast and aren't a Glossy Plus subscriber yet, it's time to consider joining to get access to all of Glossy's content, member events, ticket discounts, Slack chats, and more. As a reward for listening, use the code podcast at glossy.co slash plus to get 20% off an annual subscription. And as always, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Anchor FM and leave us any feedback you have.